Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to another edition of Sarah Tea Time. This is podcast episode number seven. I am your host, Sarah T, where every Wednesday for a half hour from noon West Coast time, uh, 3 p.m. East Coast time, I bring people onto my show that I admire and generally just curious about and like to enjoy getting to know better. So all the while recording it and sharing it with you. So thank you for your own curiosity by joining me today. Uh, previous podcasts are up on the website, which can be found at sarahteatime.com, including our most recent one with Valiant himself and the band Valiant Store. He was talking about some of his recent record finds while traveling, as well as miscellaneous uh, overviews of some of his favorite campy films. Uh, previous guests have been with Body Burton, who runs this blog for StarWars.com, as well as Calvin Johnson, founder of K Records. And one of my favorites, Johnny Ryan, uh, he's a cartoonist, and more, all up at sarahteatime.com. Now, this week's guest is Sam Valenti from Ghostly International. Um, it's an independent label that was founded in Ann Arbor and recently just named one of the best 50 indie labels in America by Billboard magazine earlier this week. Uh, Ghostly is home to many an artist, uh, including some of my recent favorites being Calm Trues, Mishnah, Mux Mool, Solvent, uh, School of Seven Bells, uh, Matthew Deer, and much, much more. But if you head over to ghostly.com, that's ghostly.com, uh, you can begin to open up your mind and ears to the world of ghostly. But let's bring Sam on with us now. Hey, Sam, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Sarah? Thank you for joining me today. Thanks <laughs> for having me. On the show that's named after me. <laughs> Where are you right now? Uh, I'm currently in Los Angeles this week. What are you doing out there? What am I doing in Los Angeles? Well, I am um, just catching up with some, some of our team here. We've got... Uh, couple shows coming up. We've got a show at the Echoplex with Tycho and Shigeto uh, on the 30th, and then right after that, we've got um, a showcase at Bumbershoot in Seattle. So that's a lot of West Coast stuff is going on, some shows in Portland and, and whatnot. So it's uh, I always love this time of year for touring, I guess. It's August to me always is symbolic of like roadshow time. Maybe it's uh, the worst time with the weather, but um, yeah, a lot of acts, Tycho, Shigeto, most countries are on the road, so it should be fun. When is Bumbershoot? Bumbershoot is next, or two weeks from now, I think. It's September um, 3rd and 4th. Our showcase is on the 4th, which I think is Sunday. Who's going to be on your showcase there? We, let's see, we have, um, it's a pretty awesome lineup. We're pretty excited that so many people were able to do it. Uh, School of Seven Bells, um, Seattle's own Luzine. We've got our new band, Hate Rock, which um, 
our this is our debut tour in the states. So they are playing. Um, they're playing Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Portland, a few other dates. And so that's their debut maiden voyage here. Um, they're Australian, but they're from. They're currently living in London. And we've got School uh, School Seven Bell that I mentioned. Site Below is playing. Raphael lives in Seattle as well. Tom Trues, coming in from New Jersey, and um, Shigeto from New York. So it's a pretty full day of ghostly action. Pretty excited. I was pretty excited to find out Tom Trues was uh, from Princeton, which is where I went to high school. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I don't quite really know where you live because you you seem to constantly be living somewhere else. Every time I check in. It's it's yeah you're right. I was gonna lie, but you're right. I was gonna deny it, but you're right. I'm actually in Ann Arbor right now. Awesome. And How's I say it in that voice. Um, it's fine. I say it in that mysterious voice for those who are listening because ghostly. Uh, under my impression, but this is what I want to get into with you. Was founded in Ann Arbor. Is that correct? That's correct. We uh, okay. still call Ann Arbor home as well. Now, for those of you who don't know, I was hoping you could kind of open the vaults because although it, in my mind it seems like not that long ago that I found out about Ghostly, it's probably been 10 years. And for me, knowing about it, I probably think I found out about it in like 2000 and 2000 or something. So if you could tell me a little bit about uh beginnings of ghostly and, and when when you started sure um the label is it's kind of like uh once you get past 10 years you kind of start to fudge it a little bit and like some labels want to be older than they are and then there's like for me it's like you want to be you know you want to pretend like you're younger so it's like constantly saying 39 or like 29 or something so i mean it's yeah it's, it's north of 10 years now um started it in 99 and um, I started in college at University of Michigan. So I actually had just gotten to school, and I already had a sort of name picked out and, like, the logo sketching sketches of it in high school because I had a very daft uh, DJ name of DJ Space Coast uh, from the tender age of 15. So the word, the ghost, kind of the feeling kind of stuck with me, and then the word ghostly kept appearing. I kept seeing it in books, and it, it just kind of pulled itself out everywhere I saw it. Um, and I was really into, obviously, electronic music, but um, really more into hip-hop as a as a teenager. And obviously, that time was very fertile for hip-hop music on a major level and on an indie level. Um, and then that kind of, you know, the gateway drug into um, drum and bass. And obviously, being from the Detroit area, you have the inspir- inspiration of, like, Detroit radio and Detroit techno. And... Um, I remember Carl Craig actually came to my high school. Uh, this was like 97, 96, 97, I think, right when more songs came out. Um, and he played a sort of live performance, which wasn't like the best performance ever. It was more kind of Carl pushing the boundaries. It was like a 5.1 surround sound and auditorium. But what it did was kind of put a face on it for me in some ways. I mean, I already had had a lot of those records, Planet E and Transmat and stuff, but just kind of seeing like the possibilities and seeing how accessible, you know, I would run into JV at the record store and, you know, all the Detroit DJs worked at record time and, and melodies and memories in these stores that kind of was like a big brother system. Like they would be like, don't buy that record, get this one. Or like, 
you know, check, or I used to go sneak into St. Andrew's Hall with DJ House Shoes, you know, who was kind enough to let me kind of tag along. And I think that era of, you know, it's still going on, but obviously the internet um, changed a lot. But you had the era of, like, record stores and, and club nights and sort of small communities that created, like, a way to understand how, like, what music was good. And uh, to make a long story short, I think that that culture of, like, record stores and uh, DJ culture, at the time, obviously, too, like, turn of the millennium, get a lot of really interesting stuff coming across, you know, overseas. Detroit was kind of in a transition phase, I think. Like, a lot of the guys were not making a ton of music. It was, the labels were still there, but they were not, um, like, producing as much content as they used to. So, I thought it was kind of a cool idea to come out with a new American label that kind of represented the ethos of the Midwestern Detroit, Chicago aesthetic, you know, a strong brand, um, but also had kind of a diverse genre-fied approach, sort of de-genre-fied, where it didn't really matter what kind of music it was. It was more about the sensibility and, like, the feeling. So I guess that's kind of the idea behind Ghostly. Well, that has always come across to me, the sense of, in terms of Ghostly, like, that you don't have exclusivity of sound. And this is, I I find it to be a mistake amongst people when I hear them kind of dividing and tearing apart and choosing which sound of electronic music that they only enjoy. And they, they you know, any sense of dividing and hierarchy in that system, uh, to me, seems ludicrous because, you know, there's a lot of threads that come back to the same source. And what I love about Ghostly and that I feel in my perception, and, and, and I'd love to hear more what you think about this, that, you know, with the Detroit roots where, I mean, all sorts of people come together, make all sorts of different types of electronic music, and, it, of course, there's a certain people who are just the techno heads or whatever and, and choose their genre, but what I loved about Ghostly is that you didn't stick to one genre and you you, you went for a certain type of quality and aesthetic that, that fit with you. I was wondering if it was a conscious choice, you know. I think so. I think nowadays it kind of seems even quaint to talk about like genre just because it doesn't seem to matter much anymore. And I think um, just the way we consume music is not, it's not formatted. Like we're not listening to, a lot of people aren't listening to full albums. They're not listening to certain radio stations. So you, we just have this sort of like, you know, flow of, of music constantly. Um, to, to sort of drink from, like, a passing river. So you're just putting your hand in and, like, out, out comes whatever is percolating that day, whether it's on, like, Facebook or you're um, getting emails or IMs from friends with links. It's just sort of the mash has happened. And I think that that's great because people aren't thinking in terms of, like, context. Um, sometimes that can be valuable, obviously, as you want to go deeper. There's not a lot of great ways to to explore, like, the roots. I mean, YouTube surfing is still, like, one of the best music discovery vessels. But, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's cool that uh, we don't have to think about that anymore. I mean, obviously, it's still relevant to some people. And genre is important as far as, like, building blocks and understanding, like, where things come from so they don't just become... It's like if you have architecture and you have, you know, col- you know Greek columns and then you have, you know, modernists, you know, on un- unfinished uh, 
steel, you know, siding and, and glass block windows, it's kind of like a mess. So it's important, I think, to have a sense of like, okay, this is if you're interested, this is where things come from, and this is sort of the higher, this is where the roots are. But I think trying to self-identify with genre as an artist or a label, it just doesn't really make sense anymore, um, unless you're really trying to fit in into a certain space. Which I don't know. I mean, in some in certain subgenres, that makes sense. But um, I think people are just excited about music finally, which is great. I I agree. Um, what were some of the songs or album that, when you were younger, opened up your mind to that a, a different reality? It could be a song or an album when you were growing up, either in your high school era or earlier. I mean, I think the the, the ones that you don't quite realize a lot of times is music discovery. There's the stuff that you remember, like the first time you hear it. You know, obviously, I think for a lot of people. You know, when they first heard Nirvana, they were like a teenager. That was like this sort of like the way it must have felt to hear, you know, um, the Sex Pistols in the sense that it was loud and bombastic and it felt like something that your parents wouldn't like, even though it was like really it was pop music. Um, That's cool. And like hearing Dr. Dre and like Public Enemy the first time, like those were like, you know, stand alert and like you're, you're at full attention. But I think the things that were interesting were the ones that were more kind of subtle and like seductive, like, you know, Slum Village, I got a tape from, from Detroit. Uh, now he's on in the West coast, but um, DJ House Shoes from Detroit gave me a tape of theirs in like 96 or whatever it is when it came out. And I listened to it and I liked it, but I didn't really realize that it was different until later. And then I was like, oh, okay, this was this subtle sort of devolving or deconstruction or unraveling of hip hop as far as like, way it was produced and then that's that stuff tends to stick to your ribs further than the things that are sort of like super over i find because they're i, I like slight i like slight uh permutations uh, um where you you can't quite identify what's different but it feels different so i guess yeah slum village has that kind of um lit, you know lightning in a bottle effect over time definitely when did it click to you that because there can be a point where you know you're in high school and you're into music when did you realize that well I can only speak for my own where it becomes like something that you have to do and it's completely a part of your life like when did it click that music was going to be your life like you committed to it um not being a musician like it was never sort of this the feeling of like I gotta you know be a musician. I, I try, a lot of the artists I work with, you know, it's like that's they didn't have a choice. Like they have to be an artist. A lot of the designers, painters, like people, photographers, like it's kind of just who they are. And they need to do anything else. It almost seems like an affront. Like for me, it was um, a steady. Like I didn't realize that I was getting deeper. And then yeah, I realized looking around now that everything I've been involved with has been in the space of music and, and design in some capacity, even though I'm not a creator and I don't aspire to be, I don't, I don't, it's not my like calling. I like to work with artists, but I mean, DJing, I guess, um, as a teenager, a lot of my friends as well. I think that DJing has this sort of, in a, in a sort of pre-internet context, it was like the idea of being able to work with music. Um, nowadays it's just, it's common, not like sharing a song online is like, being a DJ or like turntable FM is the most literal 
example, but the idea of being able to like deconstruct or like share, and this isn't trying to be philosophical, it's just, you know, buying records and then mixing them or like uh, choosing certain sets of music for people to hear is like kind of is like a very democratic thing. Like you can, anybody can do it. And then obviously your skill and like the response is what dictates how well um, it's received. But I like the idea that for me, it seemed very, there was no hierarchy. Like to get into music, when we started the label, I met Matthew Deere and Disco D in college. Disco D already had a record out. Um, you know, Matthew had, had been working on music and I wanted to start the label and it just felt really natural to just do it. And it didn't matter. We didn't need to get some like major label approval or we didn't need to sort of work our way up in some system. You could just put a record out and then go and drive it to the record store and sell it if they liked it. And then a DJ would play it if they liked it, but there was no, I like things that don't feel like they're like bureaucratic, like you just can do it. And the response is what, People don't care who you, who you are, where you're from, as long as the music's good. And I think that's kind of, to this day, something that music has that a lot of other industries, it's uh, it's trickier to start with. Yeah, thank goodness. It's a relief. Um, how has your perception of the music industry changed since you, know, you first started it in your dorm room? I mean, not, not a ton. I mean... I'm, we were playing with Napster when we were putting out the first record. So it wasn't like this sort of pipe dream, like, oh, it's going to be like the music industry is going to like get bigger and crazier. It was kind of writing was already on the wall. So it wasn't like we did it to like, that it was going to get a giant business. It was just the idea of putting out records is, is fun. I mean, I think everybody loves being a DJ and loves making choices and selections. And I also wanted to marry like my interest in, in, in art and design that I was learning about at the time into it so that there was this, when you put those things together, I think it's powerful and we try to treat, we've been putting a lot of more emphasis on the visual designers as well these days, not just musicians because it kind of, they go hand in hand. I mean, there's not a hierarchy of not only musical genre, but like actual format. So you have, you have great artists and you have great designers and um, everybody we work with, we like to think is good at what they do. And, uh, it, it just kind of connects. So I think on an industry level, I mean, industry obviously changes, but it's still pretty much the same thing. It's like trying to create as good a, a release as you possibly can and get it to an audience that will appreciate it. Um, now there's just more tools to do that. But we've lost a lot of record stores. That's the biggest bummer to me, um, and, you know, because those are, like, great community builders. Um, and... Other factors have changed, but it hasn't been changed so much that it's unrecognizable in my mind. Now, for those of you who haven't been to the website, you should definitely head over to ghostly.com because as Sam is describing in terms of his artists and the people he worked with, not just sound-wise, but visually, um, I think he used the word earlier, marriage, and I'm going to use it again, the marriage of those two is impressive um, from concept visual sound and packaging um very unique so um but were there any other labels that you were inspired by in concept or creativity before starting yeah absolutely i mean i'm definitely go through the label inspired by labels um 
and the idea, the sort of idea that a record label is like a school of thought. So, I mean, just seeing labels like ectomorphs, interdimensional transmissions, which was an Ann Arbor label, and uh, just seeing it and not knowing who did it, but just looking at the package or looking at the vinyl and seeing like the Ann Arbor P.O. box. I'm like, okay, this can be done. You know, and obviously Detroit, Transmet, um, Planet E, um, Metroplex, et cetera. And then on an international level, I loved the, the classic indies, you know, the Factory, 4AD, Creation. I mean, those are kind of the mythical mute, um, all of them, XL. They're all, they're all sort of, uh, they set the tone for what an indie label was it capable of achieving. And so I think all of them um, were interesting, but more interesting really is like the artist and and what what artists could come out of the of an indie label and still continue to. And I think that nowadays it doesn't really matter. Everyone's like, oh, major this or indie that. It's just kind of a lot of majors are signing good bands and a lot of indies are signing bad bands. Like it doesn't necessarily matter. It's just more of like how well how good the music is and does it communicate. And uh, it's nice not to have to think about that. Like, the fact that we're indie is somehow higher or lower or a disadvantage or an advantage. It's just purely can we do a good job with the artists that we work with. And that's uh, it's liberating to kind of have that pressure off of having to carry that indie holier-than-thou thing because I think it's kind of destructive ultimately. I don't care where it's coming from um, as long as it's good and as long as it's, it's it's the artist is uh, main, taken care of. That's what matters. But if you have a great label and you can create a, a sort of lifestyle or an image around it, I think that's all the better. And that's what I wanted to do with Ghostly. And it seems rather organic, um, which is appreciated. And how do you find your artist? It's that way. I think organic is is a fair word. I mean, a lot of our artists introduce us to other artists. Um, you know, it's it's kind of either we there's an artist that we that we know that we like, or in the early days it was mostly artists from from Michigan because that was who we were in contact with and talking to. And then some artists were like labeled on on smaller indie labels overseas that maybe didn't have representation in the U.S., like a Luzine or a Solvent. Um, that were North American artists and sort of working with them. And then, you know, random inter, 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 introductions from other artists. We met a lot of our, our bands through, hey, you should check out these guys or like they're friends with so-and-so. So I think you do have a familial energy. And I think the great labels have that feeling that it's almost like a group of friends um, and with a shared sort of instinct or like mission. That, those are the labels that I think have the, the greatest resonance you know, and there's almost like cottage industries. So, yeah, I think uh, organic's a fair word for sure. Um, well, believe it or not, we only have about five minutes left, but I wanted to um, ask what are some upcoming ghostly projects that you can tell us about? Sure. I mean, I think um, coming up this fall, I mentioned this, this band Hate Rock, which is spelled H-T-R-K, so it gets pronounced lots of different ways, which is totally fine. Um, they're a, a great Australian group um, who live in London. They lost a member 
uh, to suicide, which is a cause that, you know, is close to my heart and something that um, really, you know, breaks my heart. We lost one of, like, my spiritual co-founders, Disco D. We lost him to suicide a few years ago. Um, obviously, a lot of creative people, some of the most creative people are, are some of the most affected by depression and mental health, and I think um, it's something we need to sort of be conscious of and, and supportive of, and, you know, we've, we've worked with organizations um, such as SAVE, sort of depression awareness, but not to get off on a tirade or a, tie, a tangent, but, yeah, Hate Rock is a fantastic group. They worked on this record together before they lost Sean, and they finished it and sort of soldiered on, and it's just a really gorgeous sort of uh, haunted piece of, like, electronic pop. Um, their album's coming out in a couple weeks. Uh, it's called Work, Work, Work. And then an artist from San Francisco called Tycho, who's known to a lot of people as a designer as ISO 50, um, who's got a great blog of the same name. And his second album, the first in, I think, six or seven years, is coming out um, in November called Dive. And he's touring with a band now, and it's really exciting. It's couldn't be further from hate rock musically. It's very uh, sort of sweeping and um, melodic and sort of, uh, he calls it sort of like a future past music. Like it has a sort of nostalgic quality, but it's very, it's very hi-fi. It's very detailed. So, yeah, and then, um, numerous other things are coming up next year. Matthew Deere, School of Seven Bells, Choir of Young Believers, um, some surprises hopefully, and and on the visual side, um, Michael China and this really great couple from Chicago called Son and Zimmer just finished the poster for our Bomber Shoot Showcase, which is great. And uh, <clears throat> Michael's got some March shows coming up in Chicago and continuing to really focus to, I think, the ghostlystore.com. We're putting a lot of time into making it feel – it's stuff that we like, stuff that we we buy and we live with, bags prints, headphones, things that kind of make life better as much as a, an object can. Um, so at, at the ghostlystore.com and ghostly.com, we, all this stuff gets updated if anybody wants to check it out. Perfect. Do you think, now, for those who don't know, um, Ghostly teamed up with Adult Swim sometime probably a couple years back. Is that something that you might do again? Or Yeah, absolutely. And we... A lot of our music's in their bumpers. Um, you know, they're great. They do. They're a brand. They're like a crew that's consistently pushing music. And I know they have some cool stuff in the works. So anytime there's a chance to work with them, we definitely jump at it. But yeah, they. I, there hopefully will be some more collaborations in the future for sure. Uh, the way that you can find that probably the easiest way is just by searching like Ghostly Adult Swim or what is it, what was it called? The compilation. Ghostly Swim. Okay, and so search for that, and um, you can download quite a few tracks, including one of my favorite one, uh, Triple Chrome Dipped by Mishna. Is that how you say it? Mishna? Mishna? Okay. Yeah, I got some music in the works, too, which is always good. That track, seriously, is one of my favorite songs. Um, once again, triple chrome dipped. But, um, yeah, so everyone, head over to ghostly.com to begin exploring. Um, Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I appreciate your tangents, no matter what directions they take. And, um, no, I'm serious. 
this is reality. I don't I don't want to I don't need sound bites where we're pretend human beings with plastic voice boxes. So, uh once again, Sam Valenti joining me. Uh thank you very much. Uh this will be up later at SarahTeaTime.com. I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Sam. Thanks again. All right, so once again, SarahTeaTime.com for any and all podcasts, including this one, past and future ones. My name is Sarah T, and every Wednesday, I host the show magically with my brain and my throat. Join me next week, and thank you for joining me for this one. The weekly podcast, every Wednesday, Sarah Tea Time.